This is a Ward Scott Files advisory. The Ward Scott Files podcast may contain material not suited for people who are easily offended. Trust us on this. This show contains adult information and opinions. Please protect small children, sensitive pets, fragile houseplants, and liberal relatives. Thank you. A warthog. He's going to come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me. Help. Help. Good morning. Good morning. Professor Ward Scott here in the Manly Warthog Man Cave. You know how it is here in the Melton Law Studio, which is of Melton Law has 50 years of experience and they are the only official law firm partner of the University of Florida Gators. They won't back down. We're protected 24-7, 365 by our good friends at Crime Prevention. Check them out. CPSS.net and our mugshots sponsored by our High Springs attorney, Reese T. McDaniel. Uh, we've got a really good show for you today and uh, one that the community has been uh, kicking around for quite a while now. I don't know whether you can call it a successful uh, back and forth or whether it's just once again on deaf ears. But um, this whole idea of making housing affordable, in my humble opinion, is a myth. Uh, the only way you make something affordable is you can afford to pay for it. And um, that's, the, that's the bottom line. So somebody's got to pay for it. And, you know, bear in mind, as I've said before, yours truly was the chair for a year of an affordable housing committee in the city of Alachua. And we did all kinds of research on it. We pulled in all kinds of experts. And I sat there and formed my own kind of opinion about what I thought was the reality of this. And somebody either provides the land or provides the money or subsidizes the cost somewhere along the line in order to make the word affordable really be um, um, affordable. Now, there's some hidden agendas in this. Um, there is the race card, of course, and uh, there is also the whole really sort of, I, I hate to use the word again, but it's socialism. It's, it's flattening out the peaks and valleys of, of, of uh, people's um, ability to enjoy the endeavors of their, uh, the results of their private endeavors. So there's a real attack on private property here that you never see mentioned overtly. It's buried in lingo and language like inclusionary, exclusionary. And I'm telling you, the, the citizens' eyes fog over, glaze over when these words come up. The other thing that people don't understand is there supposedly is a process by which these events take place and put into practice, and they involve committees and input and ex all that, and it hasn't really occurred from what we can tell. So in order to clear up uh, any kind of misunderstanding you might have uh, in the public, I asked a very good friend of mine, uh, Terry Martin, back to come in and talk with you for a while. He is, my golly, and one of the most qualified people I know to do this, he is, I've been on the code enforcement uh, committee. That is a real eye opener there, a code enforcement board in Alachua County. He's also a realtor. He's a property manager. Um, I don't know what, I'm run out of fingers and toes. He's, he's, a he's been a fundraiser for Peaceful Paths and Soldiers Freedoms Outdoors, the Alachua County Veterans Memorial Committee, and um, avid bike rider and just a really, has written books, a really bright guy, good friend. I'm, I'm fortunate to counsel, uh, count, uh, counsel with him and count him among my, uh, my good buddies. So um, I contacted him to come on. He's uh, going to be with us right now. This is Terry Martin back. And we probably, I'm going to watch the chat lines here pretty carefully to see if you want to um, ask any questions. Uh, I'll watch it on the Facebook chat. And then at the bottom of the hour, depending upon how things go, we may open up the uh, phone lines and let you call in. But right now, Terry, um, I want to start off with, first of all, that introduced you properly, sir. I haven't covered everything, have I? Well, yeah, well, other than that, you know, 20 years in the military, combat veteran from Operation Desert Storm. Yeah. And, you know, local horse thief. You know, it's all, it all works. Local horse thief. I left that out. Yeah. Combat veteran from Desert Storm. I don't, I'll tell you, really got the credentials. So, um First thing that tickled me about this, Terry, is um, they had the wrong date for the meeting. Can you believe it? Yes, I can. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, 
Board, I have attended different meetings with the city of Gainesville when it comes to uh, landlord tenant, comes to housing, uh, been a part, like you said, been a part of code enforcement and I'm a general contractor and having to put up with uh, all this. And they're talking about affordable housing is what's caused the cost of housing and rentals to go up. So basically, it's the city of Gainesville and Latchville County forcing people out. Well, there, I don't know if there's any more succinct way to, uh, to state it than that. But there's been an awful lot of uh, information out there. Of course, you know, people have, my experience, they have opinions based upon incomplete research. And thought I, I thought one of the things we might do, ironically, today, um, there has been uh, some publications in the Gainesville, what I call Sunset, as you know, and some letters to the editor um, that we can maybe start off and, and either agree with or, or disagree with, and, or at least expand on. And I thought I would begin with these bulleted points um, written by a, a couple of guys who uh, purport to be heads of a couple of, uh, of um, organizations here that neither you and I have ever heard of, uh, a gentleman by the name of Gary Hankins and Jason Sanchez. But it's their contention, and I'd like to have your response on it, Terry, uh, that um, this is a way uh, gr building greater density is really beneficial because it's an efficient way of utilizing scarce real estate assets. How's that ring your bell? Uh, higher density means higher crime, higher cost to uplift the community. Anytime that you start increasing density, you're going to have to upgrade your utilities lines, whether it be sewer, water, lines, electrical. The question is, who's going to pay for that? The, the, and the answer is the end user pays for that. That doesn't create affordable housing. It creates least affordable housing. Well, I think you make a great point. As a contractor, you'd be aware of that right away. It's just not the house, the shell, the building. It's the services to the building. Um, and I'm assuming that you'll have uh, kind of a cash cow, if you will, for GRU. If there used to be one meter, now you're going to have four in a quadruplex. Um, <laughs> that's a hidden deal, isn't it? Yeah, that's an asset for GRU. Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, how about this idea that it improves transit? You know, I don't know that transit is uh, feasible and functional now. So how's it going to improve transit? They say by shortening bus routes and piling more people on them. Um, I don't know, my man. Well, here's what I go. How many times have you driven by uh, bus stops in Gainesville and seen 20 or 30 people waiting for a bus? maybe off of uh, Southwest 20th Avenue where a majority of the college students are, but people aren't using the bus system. Number one, it, it doesn't run on time. How, ma how many people do you know that have the time to sit and wait an hour, hour and a half for a bus to make it to, one, to make it to work or make it to class or to go grocery shopping? It, our current system, our current transportation system is not like what we have in Europe or we have in the, uh, you know, Korea and Japan where buses run every 10 or 15 minutes. So you can accommodate yourself. The city of Gainesville, number one, and their bus system cannot afford to operate the way that they do in Europe or as in Japan, Korea. So they're not making any sense. Now, what they are doing is creating a walkable or rideable community. But I'm going to ask you another question. How many people these days do you see out walking to the job or riding their bike to the job? Back to you. Well, the only people I see riding the bikes are the kids, the, the bicycle youth, young people. <clears throat> and I don't know that they uh, 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 constitute the vested ownership of the community. Mm -hmm. and that's really kind of where I focus, you know. You know, you have the rental market over here for the for the for the students, but what about the people who live here and invest here and pay off mortgages and try to use that as an asset building tool? Um, that really is what a city is about. Um, but if this is a, in, in, installed in any way, shape, or form, um, and we know this too, we know that the heavy landlord rental regulations in this community were made, were they not, Terry, because in single-family resident neighborhoods, as people moved out and left the homes for rentals and the students came in, all hell broke loose. 
And you had to have all these onerous regulations, which you put on the landlord's back rather than the student's back. Come on, I got that right? Well, it's what's funny you mentioned that is I've, I attended all the briefings uh, with the city commission, whether it's at the GRU, UF, or at the uh, city commission uh, meet, meeting area. The biggest complaint that was brought on what started this whole landlord-tenant issue were students who were living in apartments, not single-family residents. Uh, they were complaining because the managers wanted them to sign, re-sign re a lease within six months of their lease ending. And when they wouldn't answer that, then they would start showing a unit. That was the complaint that brought on the landlord-tenant. Then all of a sudden, since they found out that they couldn't fit, fight that, they go, okay, we're going to go to court enforcements and see what the issue is there by the people complaining about students living in housing or people living in substandard housing. Well, the code enforcement officer briefed the commission that less than 1% of those complaints are still outstanding. Because once somebody called code enforcement's, and the owners got involved or code enforcement's got involved, then those issues were resolved. And now they converted back to energy efficiency. We need to have energy efficient HVAC, windows and doors in order to be able to rent these properties. And subsequently, since this has been enforced, we've lost over 30% of our rental properties due to people seeing what's coming down the pike. And also to let you know that the Alachua County is want to follow the city of Gainesville's rules. So implementing inclusionary uh, zoning within the city of Gainesville could be coming to Alachua County very soon. Well, you made a very good point there about code enforcement, and no one probably is better able to talk about it. You were on the code enforcement board for how many years? Uh, four years. Four years? Mm -hmm. What was your kind of, uh, what did you take away from that? What did you kind of? Well, I found out that some of the uh, code enforcement officers were really aggressive against certain businesses. Uh, but when it come down to residential, it, the, the majority of the problems that come through was trash. People leaving garbage out there, unlicensed vehicles sitting in their driveway or out in their yard. That was the biggest complaints. Now, there were also the complaints that come through where landlords weren't, wouldn't keep up with housing. The roof leaked or there weren't any screens in the windows or there, there was unsafe uh, environment. Could be holes in the floor. Those were all resolved because once they come to us and we looked at the what the complaint was, we give them ideas of what it is that they needed to do in order to, to fix it. Then we give them so much time to come back and do that, typically within 30 to 60 days. Then they call back to the board and say, OK, we're done. And that's how we resolve the issues. Uh, now, there were some issues where code enforcers go out there and they were overly aggressive. You might remember the kid in northeast Alachua County where the code enforcement board and EPA went after him for putting uh, cutting down trees and creating pasture land. And they were going, they wanted, what they wanted him to do was to uh, sign a quit claim deed to the environment so nobody could go up there and clear, clear trees in the future or farm the land. And he fought that. And we fought at the code enforcement board and eventually EPA and code enforcement lost their bid. Keep in mind also, there is no longer a code enforcement board. It is now going to a magistrate who is hired by the county. Same thing with the city. So what would your idea be knowing that you have someone whose paycheck is coming from the county or the city to be listening to your case presented by the code enforcement board government? Interesting. I had not kept up with the magistrate concept. So um, um, the concept of urban sprawl, we've been living with that for many years, Terry, here in Florida, as you know. And one of the arguments is that this intensity inclusion inside these cities will pull all the people back into them and you won't have the urban sprawl. But, you know, what that doesn't seem to take into account, in my experience, is City of Gainesville has a boundary, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, and it's a, it's a different set of rules. But on the other hand, you do have this movement to align the county with the city and people who are wondering about single member districts. I think this is a very good example. If you're going to have the city of Gainesville ideology become the county ideology, which it's really always been, uh, then you're going to have the 
proof of that and the same rules being applied in the county that are being applied in the city. Is that the way you have I said that right? Well, it's generally the, the county is a couple of years or a couple of years behind the city of Gainesville. But what they do is they see, quote, how can we create housing or whatever the issue is and create fairness among the community? What's fair for Gainesville is fair for Alachua County, correct? Well, <laughs> not if you live in the county, it certainly hasn't been. <laughs> the uh, increase of the city's tax base. Well, you know, I have to laugh at that in revenue because this city can't find its revenue now. Um, you know, we don't even have enough paperwork to have an auditor come in and figure out whether or not the city's uh, financial situation is in order. Uh, I mean, that's a fact. You know, they had to back off. And then, of course, we both know that the city has really relied on the cash cow, GRU, all these years. And, and uh, that has always been a beef because there are people who can't vote on the people who make decisions about how that cash is borrowed from GRU. So um, I don't know that it increases the city's tax base. The problem is, if it increases, will they spend it wisely? And what would they spend it on? And the, the accountability for the city right now and what they spend it on is not all that glowing, I suppose. I don't know what your comment is on that. Well, the, the problem is the city has money coming in. What the city has is a spending problem. This research document they did to uh, bring out, uh, to do a study on inclusionary housing and exclusionary zoning, it paid $212,600 for that survey. And uh, I attended the meeting at uh, Bo Diddley Plaza as well as the uh, city commission meeting. I brought, I gave them an opportunity or I give them an example of what they could do to create and test uh, the idea of exclusionary zoning and uh, inclusionary zoning by using and cheat as cheat, be able to go into an area to where they can take a property that taxes hasn't been paid on in five years, take that property, trial and error zone that and put the exclusion or you know the inclusionary housing on that lot and to see how it works with that $212,600 they spent on that survey they could have created affordable housing and tested to see if the idea actually works so it's the Gainesville has a spending problem uh and they're trying to encroach on other communities to create their tax base so they can continue to spend or cover the debt they've already created. Hill, Hill Plantation is one of those. They're sending out surveys to see if they want to come into the city of Gainesville right now. Look at the tax base of Hale Village or the or Hale Plantation. We're talking with uh, Terry Martinback, who really is uh, very well prepared here with all the different hats he's worn. We also have a copy, thanks to Terry, of the exclusionary zoning, inclusionary uh, zoning study. Tammy, if it's the one that would have been sent second, it is, um, if you can put it, well, it's not going to go through the whole thing, but we'll show it to you. Uh, I think our production can put it up there. It's called Final Report, Gainesville. Do you see that production on the email? Final Report, Gainesville PDF. Exclusionary zoning and inclusionary zoning study. If you would just put just put the front page up, and we'll we'll take a look at it. And um, this has cost the city how much, Terry? Two hundred and twelve thousand six hundred dollars. Yeah, this cost. <laughs> and uh, who's counting? Uh, pardon me. I said, who's counting? It's just yeah, who's, ca who's counting? Mm -hmm. And I think it's ninety nine pages. Or they almost. Yeah, about 99 pages. Um, do we have it up there? There it is. Thank you. Thank you, production. And I just want to, uh, would you roll down, please? Uh, can you scroll down to the acknowledgments? I think that's the second page in production. Um, and I'm a little bit time lagged behind. But, you know, I'm looking at these names. <laughs> yeah, thank you very much. I'm looking at these names. I got to tell you, Terry, I bring a fair amount of skepticism to some of them. Um, you know, Lauren Poe, Ariola, uh, that was the city commission at the time, I guess. Reno Seco, my joke is really a, 
Cuban communist. I, I'm sorry, Harvey Ward. <laughs> and then the steering committee, um, did they get the steer? I always wonder about a steering committee. Did they steer? <laughs> Is that also referred to as redlining? You're focusing on where you want get that actual information. Oh, redline is keeping people out of neighborhoods. I'm talking about focusing. You're paying for the information that you want to receive. The question is, if they didn't get the information they wanted to receive, would they actually pay for the contract? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I've seen this is really something. Uh, you have to take a big breath to go through this. And I'm, of course, scrolling down on my end. And I guess production kind of kind of just scroll down and you can, you can slowly if you would, Tammy, just scroll down it and, uh, you know, we'll look at it, uh, give you a feel for this. It's quite an exhaustive, expensive, I, you know, and to, I don't know. This is not the first of the spasms of research that this city has done. Um, do you really think that this concept as these fellows from the communities that care, community land trust and that whatever that is and Gainesville's for people, would generate more affordable housing for each dollar invested? No. Huh? No. There's With the cost of housing, the cost of uh, developing the land, the horizontal development, the only thing they can do, and if you go back to House Bill 7103, is the government has to get involved with uh, helping fund them, whether it's reducing uh, the cost of the fees, uh, you know, tax incentives, taking it away from the tax base. Again, that's spending taxpayer money in order to fund somebody else's housing. And that's what it comes to. Uh, and I, I encourage people to read the House Bill 7103 and also the uh, Florida uh, Housing Coalition. I think people need to understand who's behind all this inclusionary uh information or the what I call the little snowball that's rolling that's going to be rolling across Florida because of their heartfelt we need to create more affordable housing for those who are unable intellectually or mentally to be able to buy or to yeah to to be able to, to purchase affordable housing intellectual now think about that they went to school but they didn't work hard enough or they didn't get a trade, a training, or the skills in order to create the income that they need to buy the house they or the buying a neighborhood where they desire to live. Well, you make a very interesting point here about this house bill. And we have to remind you, uh, our listeners and audience, that this is the Republican legislature, correct me if I'm wrong, Terry, that passed this bill. And it, it you, know, you have to scratch your head. Um, you know, what, what happened? You know, what was there a big political contribution or something? Because affordable housing, I'm, I, you know, one of the things I've learned from doing this show, uh, Jerry, there's all sorts of code language that translates into something. And you kind of talked about it a moment ago. How come you can't afford to buy your own house? Well, we don't want to go there because we're going to run into inequities and we're going to run into meritocracy and uh, which would, that's a bad word now, working hard and uh, working your way up and don't buy what you can't afford, all those values, they're no longer around. It's uh, that you're owed something because I thought, I always remember what Obama said. I think it was, he said a couple of very damaging things. One was, of course, if you like your doctor, you can keep your doctor. But the other thing he said was you didn't build that. And what he was saying is he just demeaned everybody who ever takes risk. And you know from being in a real estate business, as I was at one time, Terry, risk is what it is about. You know, you put your name on the dotted line and you promise to pay and you make some calculations that that money will return and you're responsible for it. Yep. And, and, and um, those people are few and far between the risk takers. Now, so in my book, what we're trying to do with this is we're trying to take risk out of this for people who are risk aversive, if that's what you want to say, for all sorts of reasons, and, and give them a competitive playing field equal with those people who've worked hard and pay their bills. Mm -hmm. Now, we got a word for that. 
a mild form of that word is socialism. Yeah. I mean, that, that's what it is. I mean, I, I can't think of a better term. Tell me, Terry Martin back. We are approaching the bottom of the hour. Uh, we have on the screen here a document that cost, oh, my golly, you're going to run out of fingers and toes, 220, 30, 40, 50,000, who knows, right up in that area, dollars for yet another study has all this fancy stuff in it, project overview. And then we've got a culprit in this situation that is really strange. We have this House bill that I'm going to ask before we take a break, Terry, to explain this one more time. And we're going to put that House bill in uh, a Ward's Hot Bulletin Board as we are these documents here that we have, we're showing you. So you'll always be able to take a look at it. If you haven't taken a look at Ward's Hot Bulletin before, uh, board lately, which I just did this morning, it is amazing what we have put in the library there. We've got a 10 pages of entries of important documents in Ward's Hot Bulletin Board that are there for you to take a look at that uh, cover all sorts of issues in our community. And I invite you to take a look at it. We're going to put those these documents there. Compliments of yet another member, if you will, of the research team. Now, the research team is made up of you people in the community. We are the forum that will present your findings and we'll share them with the others. And then the others can do with what they want to with what we share. Well, I don't know if we'll change any minds or not, but we'll definitely hopefully educate you because the show is about education. So one more time before I break, and I've got to take a breath before I hear this, House bill passed by a Republican legislature opened up and it really did more than open up. It enforced, did it not? This yeah, thing was yeah, the, here's, here's the reading, and I've got it written down here, uh, simplified. Local governments to fully offset all costs, rising out of density, reducing fees, granting, changing zoning from single-family residents to multiple units. Think about that. And that's, that's, a, that's a House bill that passed. That's a House bill that passed. And that's uh, somebody comes up and said, okay, inclusionary housing, if I'm going to do that, Let's say I was only going to build a six-story building. Well, the government says, okay, we'll give you that, but you need to build an eight-story building and create affordable housing inside that. And we could talk more about how that really works. You know, uh, you've got properties in there in that house that cost, or in that building that costs $400,000. And they're going to create a housing unit that's maybe half that. And how do they do that? And, you know, another interesting thing, we have examples of affordable housing, if you will, in communities now that are not a quote unquote designated affordable housing. And I hate to say it, but those are section eight housing areas. The people living in there, and we know they're high crime areas. They're all up and down Tower Road. Uh, there's several locations of them. You, all you have to do is look at the police blotter and you see them and they correspond with so-called, although, you know, it's not really called that, section eight housing. Now, I'm not saying there can't be Section 8 housing that's run extremely well. I know one, a, a particular person here in, in, who likes it and does well with it, but has very strict regulations as a landlord about it. So it can be done. Don't get me wrong. I, I think probably Terry knows the same person I'm thinking of. But um, he works 24-7 at it, uh, runs a very tight ship, and um, is able to make it work. So I'm not saying that but it takes an awful lot of, uh, somebody has got to pay attention and hold people accountable. Um, we're gonna be right back in a moment and we're gonna talk a bit more and we'll probably talk about opening up the phone lines. I'm looking at the chat lines here too. Um, so when we come back on the Word Scott Files with Terry Martin back, my good buddy who is wearing so many hats from um, distinguished military service to contractor to uh, bike rider even. I left that out, uh, you know, it's amazing. So uh, take a break right now on the Word Scott Files, and we'll uh, thank our sponsors. So take it away, production. Although the owner of Lewis Oil Company maintains she is 29, Lewis Oil turns 60 years old in June. Chevron would like to recognize the North Florida second-generation family-owned business, celebrating its growth and staying power. Lewis Oil Company maintains significant on-hand supplies, strategically located fuel depots, a delivery fleet, on-site service, fuel card locks, and convenience stores. Lewis Oil Company understands its responsibility in the local economy by providing service and delivery on 
on demand and in crisis. As a first responder for 18 Florida counties and the southeast from Texas to Virginia, we are proud of this rare accomplishment. Lewis Oil delivers. This is Ward Scott, and I want to thank all our sponsors who keep the show going and pay the bills. The Ward Scott Files premium sponsors are Crime Prevention Security Systems, large enough to serve you, small enough to care. Melvin Law, the only official injury partner of the Florida Gators. The Ward Scott Files Gold sponsors are Maurice T. McDaniel, Shoot GTR, On the Spot Dry Cleaners, R&R Construction, and Style Cuts. If you are interested in promoting your business on the show, you can visit our website, www.awardscottfiles.com, and click on the Advertise Here banner on the right side of the page or call my friend Freddie at 352-284-3733. Again, thank you to all the great businesses that support the Wardscott Files. And remember, if you like the show, thank our sponsors and support the businesses that support us. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. May God have mercy on your soul. Or that very much surprises me that you've never been tased. You can't handle the truth! All these poop. Uh, Warthog. He's gonna come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. Wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me! Help! Help! Now for the weather. This is Ward Scott. Well, one thing about the and I want Florida to thank weather. All our sponsors who keep the show going and pay the bills. rule than it was industrial. It certainly was in my lifetime anyway. And uh, I always remember uh, the farmers relying upon the farmer's almanac for the weather. There wasn't this instant kind of radar thing we have now that we get all these alerts. My golly, on her wristwatch yesterday, her Apple smartwatch, my wife all day long kept getting weather alerts. It was amazing. And the problem with the weather alerts, it may be pouring over your head, but not your neighbor's head, or vice versa, but your watch keeps ding-a-ling. But I went back to the Florida uh, Almanac, just the Florida Almanac, to see what it had to say about a long look at the weather. And I was amazed, my good friends. On the beginning, I'm going I'm to read through this with you a little bit. It's not very, very long. And the beginning of the entry says, Florida residents be warned. It's about to get hot. So invest in a portable fan. Stock up on bottled water and avoid the sunny outdoors as we approach summer. But we're now in summer. So according to the Farmer's Almanac Summer Forecast Prediction, it said that summer 2022 in Florida is going to be a sizzler. Now, how do they know? I mean, it is amazing. Uh, Yes, a very adjective America's oldest source for weather forecast used was to describe this summer as a sizzler. And it also said that we can expect our summer months to be humid, coupled with big thunderstorms, which we're having. And uh, this was before summer even officially started, June 21st, with the summer solstice. So it will be one hot summer nationwide, the Almanac furthermore said. Uh, the closest thing to a mild summer will be in New England and the Great Lakes region, But that prediction will be true only if it's based on a wave of cool air arriving in September. How do it know? I mean, I'm really, I'm really heartening back, my good buddy, Terry, to the almanac. I just stumbled upon this. So according to this forecast, uh, it's going to be the dog days of summer in late July when it's expected to be brutally hot. Well, here we are in the dog days of July. And sure enough, the almanac, it's brutally hot. Highs in the 90s, triple digits sometimes. We've had that. And blistering hot temperatures. Uh, but 
I got no reason to believe this isn't true. The worst of the heat should be over by mid-August, the almanac says. Meanwhile, the rainfall is about normal in the middle of the country, including the Great Lakes in north and south central United States, above normal in the southeast and below normal in uh, the uh, northeast. Well, 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 drought conditions, and sure enough, take a look at Lake Mead and these places. Drought conditions are expected to really be persistent in the southwest, for even desert southwest monsoon rains aren't going to deliver any relief. The Pacific states will be unusually dry. And I'll be darned if that isn't true. We've got forest fires out in sequoias. Terry, I'm dumbfounded. I am dumbfounded at the wisdom of the farmer's almanac, my man. <laughs> if we only had one for the city of Gainesville uh, uh, behavior, right? <laughs> I think, Ward, you can be able to create that. But the problem is, is getting people to follow it. You're probably right. When we left on the break, what did we say we wanted to talk about that you were going to uh, elucidate some for us? Well, we are talking about uh, House Bill 7103. Uh, and the inclusionary zoning. And I, feel, I don't know if a lot of people really understand what inclusionary zoning is and what it's going to create for your single family residents here in the city of Gainesville. Uh, inclusionary housing is taking uh, the, changing the zoning to where you can go into a single family neighborhood and create multiple units on a single lot. Uh, they talked about taking the typical lot, let's say it's a 50 by 100, decreasing the side setbacks and the rear setbacks, putting four units inside that, that single lot. And one of the things they really didn't talk about, I don't know if you thought this was ever an issue in Gainesville, but parking might be an issue when you have four families living in uh, one, one lot. The other thing that I, I think you'll find interesting, if you go through this report, as they were talking, there would be parking in front and also in back of the unit. How many inside the city of Gainesville, how many alleys are there? I don't recall of very many. And if they are alleys, it's a, dry, it's a way to people to get into their driveway. I mean, into the garage. So I don't believe the report or the survey that was done was done actually here in the city of Gainesville. I think they took information that they had, they took information they got from Portland, Oregon, and put it in this report and fed it back to our commission and the community. So there's a lot of stuff going on out there that I don't think the community really knows. Well, I'm sure of that. The community is not ever quite, not just on this issue, it's been my experience is either misinformed or underinformed. And when they get informed, they don't get informed from a reliable source. Um, it's, um, uh, it's really typically the case I've found as I've been doing this show. Um, let's talk about uh, some of the particular steps in the process that arguably have been, if not avoided, um, uh, de-emphasized. Are you, are you say you go to these meetings and how do they go? Uh, well, the last meeting we did at the city commission building is they were talking about the inclusionary and exclusionary zoning. There was not one person who stood up and said, hey, we think this inclusionary zoning is excellent for the city of Gainesville. Not one person. And I've attended, like I said, I've attended many of these meetings to include the one that was down on uh, Bo Diddley Square. There were only, believe it or not, this, this information was put out there. There were only about 70 people from the city of Gainesville who attended that meeting. 70 out of 140,000. The it's question okay. is, is who, they, don't, they don't put the information out there. The average person doesn't understand what inclusionary and exclusionary zoning is. And they think they're going to go to this meeting and be dumbfounded by all the information. So my question to the community is, do you know the difference between inclusionary and exclusionary zoning? Well, let's help them right now and have a class and see if they can remember. I always tell them, bring their notebooks and take bring, notes. Bring your notebook. Well, inclusionary is being able to offset and change the zoning and setbacks uh, on any lot across the city. So you could have a 
Stephen Foster neighborhood where you got small lots, somebody comes in and they they go vertical four stories and put in multiple units inside that building. That's exclusionary. Also, uh, that's inclusionary. And also the government is going to assist low income people to be able to buy inside that unit. Now, I want you to know this right now. You know, you realize that exclusionary zoning is racist. It keeps it's what? It's what? racist. It yeah, keeps, yeah, yeah. It keeps people from moving into areas. Prime example, why can't black people live in my community? Because it's unaffordable. Well, I will tell you this, there are black people who live in my community. But here's what happens is what they refer to as exclusionary zoning is you have minimum lot size with minimum housing size. That was delegated years ago by our building, building department, city and county commissions. It's called snob zoning. It keeps people from moving to places with greater opportunity, increases homelessness. Did you know that I encourage people to be homeless because they can't live in my neighborhood? It's called hoarding by the upper middle class. And it's called redlining in the real estate community because as realtors, you know, we can't let people of color live in, in my community or their community. You realize that, right? Well, let me ask you a question about that. If this were to go through, let's say mm -hmm. that that very issue comes up. And, and we both know that uh, there are, the races are diversified in the communities because people who live there can afford to live there. Sure. And they don't want, they don't want people around them who can't afford to live there any more than anybody else does. Mm -hmm. But what would happen if this were to go through is they'd be forced to have people around them who they themselves, let's say a black family, work hard to get away from. You know, they sent their kids to college, they got jobs, they got educated, and they can afford, literally, realistically, afford to live in that community. So now all of a sudden, with government help, we're going to put in the middle of your community people who can only afford to live there with government help, which is taking from you and giving to them so that they can live next to you. And we have examples of that right now, uh, Terry. We have, well, I, I once upon a time was very involved with historic neighborhoods, and I was on the board of the historic games. So I was the first member. What happened? is we put money into historic Gainesville and we saved the old houses and all that, but we couldn't leave anything on our porches because it would be stolen. And the reason is on both sides of us were ghettos, okay? Quote, unquote, affordable housing, right? That people walked through our neighborhood to see their buddies, right? In the other neighborhood of their economic level, and so while they're walking through, if your lawnmower walked off with them, well, you know, they needed it, you know, not to necessarily to mow, but, you know, to sell. So that's another thing that's not talked about. And this is driving people that I've, have talked to me up a wall over here by Woodland Terrace and behind Ballyhoo um, Restaurant and in there with the old Millhopper Road extension. Going in there are neighborhoods people, rather tranquil neighborhoods. But now the plan is to stick, if I'm wrong, correct me please, so-called affordable housing in the middle of those neighborhoods. Have I got that right? That's correct. To be able to create affordable housing is taking a lot, maybe putting four tiny houses on there or doing a high rise on there. And with the, uh, again, with uh, House Bill 7103, where the government assists them to lowering costs. Now, also think about this, and I, I know, Ward, I know you know this, is that my wife sits on the Electric County Housing Authority Board, been on there for a number of years. The difference between the Electric County Housing Authority Board and the City of Gainesville Housing Authority Board is Electric County works on giving a hand up instead of a hand out. That's the difference. They're creating opportunities and teaching people how to get out of the situations they're in where they have to live in public housing and teaches them how to get out and get their own place. Also, I want to let you know that the real estate community still redlines people. You realize that, and we manage rental properties, that we will not allow someone to rent a property that they can't afford. And it's based on a income formula. If Typically, if 
if the housing is less than 40% of their annual income, then they can afford to rent it. If it's more than 40%, they can't live in that property. And we don't arbitrarily put people in financial distress by renting property. The same thing that's happening should be happening with people buying homes is if you can't afford to buy a $300,000 house and make those insurance payments and, and monthly mortgage payments and all that, then you shouldn't buy that house. You buy, like you said in the beginning, you buy what you can afford. And that's where we're at. It doesn't matter if it's inclusionary zoning or exclusionary zoning. It doesn't matter. You buy what you can afford. And what is concerning me about that is the floor of what you can afford keeps rising. Mm -hmm. uh, the entry level purchase of a so-called starter home, which is, you know, where the dream starts, so to speak, is now out of reach for a lot of people. I had a house that I uh, it was my mother's and she died and we sold it. But when we sold it, it was in great shape. It was in the Woodland Terrace area. And the uh, residents of the home, um, we, we kept the rent affordable because we really weren't using it for um, income or anything like that. We, we had a transitional place period when we had to, a mother died and then we had somebody in it, but we always intended to sell it. So well, we had a very reasonable price on that. But my golly, today already, I've gone back and checked that neighborhood. Prices have gone up $100,000 in that neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Terry's unbelievable. Yeah. And even at the price we were selling it, the residents of the place couldn't afford to buy it. Mm -hmm. I mean, even if we held a mortgage, I mean, it just wasn't going to fly. And they were great people. They were great tenants. They worked hard. They wanted to start with a home. They couldn't start with a home. And I got a call just the other day that uh, came from somebody doing a background check on these people for a rental. Now, this has been three years later, Terry. And what's happened, and I encouraged them at the time, you guys go out and find the money because we're not going to lower the price, you know, because the market would actually give us more money, considerably more money than we had a bidding war on it at the end. And these hapless souls, you know, couldn't compete. But I advised them, go out and get money from parents or whatever to start the home. You know, they couldn't do it. And now that is even great in the more in the distance than it ever was for them. Because I got called the other day and I, they asked me, what kind of people? I said, great people. Absolutely great people. They, they, they pay their own way. You know, they have jobs, but they're being priced out of the market. You've got gasoline. You've got mortgage. The mortgage rates go up to offset the dadgum. Uh, you know how all that works, of course. Uh, money the government gave away to the COVID deal. Sure. So, and also here you think about what's going on in Florida is the insurance crisis. Is the companies that are bailing out of Florida Number one, they couldn't afford to be here. So you have the cost of the house, you have insurance, you have the maintenance, and then you get to drive to work to pay for that house. You're absolutely right. I'm glad you brought that up because Southern Fidelity, for example, has pulled completely out of Florida, supposedly gone bankrupt. Uh, that which was insured, if you're a rental, uh, this is, I know you know this very well, Terry, is only rentable, is only insurable by citizens. There is no, there's no rental, there's no insurance company that I know of right now that is going to insure a rental because the first question I know of this experience personally you get is, are you renting to students? No, they'll insure that house if you're renting as an owner. I mean, if you're owning the house, they're not going to rent to students. So my next question is, who's covering all these high-rise student developments insurance wise well there are insurance companies that are underwrite especially on the new construction and also some that you have to consider is who the developer and who owns that property uh matter of fact i was just working on my uh continued education some of them may not have quote an insurance policy on it but they have a 20 million dollar bond to cover any losses or you know, any problems with the issue with the with the building 
But there are companies out there who are who are insuring these high rise uh, commercial rental properties. Uh, we have, uh, you know, we just bought a uh, a condo in uh, Southwest Gainesville. And because it's in a condo association, the exterior is covered by the association and we cover the interior uh, contents or the interior if something was to happen. So there is insurability uh, on some of these buildings. Also an understanding is the median price house is just right around, the median sales is about right around $300,000 in Alachua County. If someone is willing to take a risk, there is housing, there is housing out there affordable if you're willing to put up with the area. That's the, that's the big question. Now, there are also areas here within the city of Gainesville and Alachua County that the, the housing prices are over $200,000. And it's also in a high crime area. So, you know, it's all what you're willing to put up with within the neighborhood, whether or not you can afford. Just because you can't afford to live in my neighborhood doesn't mean there's not a neighborhood out there that you can't afford to live in. It's just you just don't want to live in that neighborhood. And why is that? Uh, it it could be, again, it could be, I don't want to live near people of color. I don't want to live uh, in a mobile home community. I don't want to live in a condo community. I don't want to live in an area where there's high crime because I, I don't want my bicycle stolen off, off my front porch. Or I don't want my lawnmower stolen. There's crime reports out there. Again, it's people want to live in my neighborhood. They just can't afford to live in there. And then they're mad at me because I can afford to live in my neighborhood, just like you. You know, it's, um, it's, it, let's talk about the mobile home world for a moment. Mm-hmm. You know, Jerry, I'm sure you're aware of this. Once upon a time, it was pretty doggone economical to live in Florida. Mm-hmm. And, and a couple of things in my lifetime changed it. One, air conditioning. Uh, because only the Hardy survived here uh, once upon a time. And you, uh, I'm, 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 I'm familiar, for example, where I come from around the St. Cloud area, the ranching area. The ranchers didn't have air conditioning. They didn't want air conditioning because they, it was too much of a contrast being out on horseback with cattle in, the, in, the, in central Florida heat to come into an air-conditioned home. So they built in a copse of trees, tall ceilings, terrazzo floors, fans, and all that, and wind circulation. They're very smart about it, um, cracker houses, so to speak. Um, and then the other thing which really made Florida unaffordable in my as humble estimation is Disney. Uh, this input of enormous attraction to outsiders coming here. And then another aspect of it is you can live here six months and one day and claim it as your primary residence and not pay uh, state income taxes, right? Mm-hmm. And that has happened because I know a lot of guys up in Kentucky who've got money, my man. They own horses, but they technically don't reside in Kentucky. They reside in Florida. So I'm wondering, too, about something we haven't talked about yet. What's going to happen to the mobile home community? Because that was once upon a time a, quote, unfordable way and it still really is in the Gulf Coast counties and the rural counties, maybe. Got any, got any observation on that? Well, it's funny you should mention that I have a lot up in Steenhatchee, and I was going to look for, quote, an affordable mobile home to stick on that lot. A two-bedroom, just a simple, single-wide mobile home to use for a cottage, and to get it on that lot was going to be well over $130,000. Really? Yeah. Now, that was a single-wide, 12-foot-wide, uh, 28-foot-long. You've got the cost of the mobile home. Then you have the cost of transporting it there. Then you have the cost of setting it up there. Then you have to hook up to the water and electric. Which there's impact fees uh, that go along with that. So after everything is said and done, if somebody had, if they went out and bought a lot in a mobile home, you're still looking at almost two hundred or over two hundred thousand dollars to uh, set up a mobile home on a lot, and even in a rural community. Even in a rural community, uh, this is in Dixie County. There's an impact fee for uh, for the electricity. 
And there's an impact fee for uh, going in there and putting a well and septic tank in. So if you're going to go out there and buy a three bedroom, two bath mobile home, that mobile home is probably going to cost you $150,000 to $170,000. And then transporting it, setting it up, you're over $200,000 again. So mobile homes, even though they're better built, better quality than what they were uh, 30, 40 years ago, are they affordable? And for the person who's out there making, you know, $15, $18 an hour, they have a truck payment, they've got kids, is that, can they afford to live in that mobile home in Dixie County? Got a question that's just come in here off the telephone service. Um, are these units um, rentals or mixed? Or could they be, could they be mixed? Um, You're talking about the Let's say a guy builds a four. I wouldn't think about that. Can you build a uh, uh, intensification here and have mixed units, some rented, living right next to you that you own? I guess you could in a condo world. Yes, right? yes. Sure. There's going to be investors buying in there. There's, there's no exclusion about people buying investment properties in these buildings. Now, the inclusionary housing is going to be specifically for homeowners. Now, also understand, I was talking with Deborah this morning about this inclusionary housing. Just because the units in there are selling for 450 and the inclusionary houses are 200, there's basically a little second mortgage with no interest sitting out there. So somebody just can't come in and say, okay, I'm going to buy this property and I'm going to flip it in a year and I'm going to sell it for $400,000 and take that $200,000. It doesn't work that way. So that little mortgage in there, you're going to have to stay there a minimum uh, from depending on the contract, 10 to 15 years before they can tur basically turn around and sell that for profit. Well, that's one of the things I learned being the chair of the affordable housing is uh, affordable for whom, at what time, what buyer? Mm -hmm. Are you talking about affordable for the entry level buyer? And then is that entry level buyer who got help able to realize and capture all the profit from selling it? Or, you know, how will that be divided? That became a pretty thorny question as we worked through that, because this idea of affordable housing doesn't stop just with the first resident. Mm -hmm. There is a debt that's carried forward and an obligation that's carried forward. And what I did come to believe is once it's affordable housing, it's always affordable housing. It's not going to be any higher use than that because of the building government subsidies along the way, they're going to have to be written off somewhere, right? Yeah, but, you know, the community, let's face it, it is not government money. It is our money. Yeah. And all these grants and all this free handouts, the SHIP program, someone has to pay for that, and that's community. Now, here's another question that I got for you. You were talking about affordable housing. I'm going to bring up Alachua County, who's wanting to bring in the landlord-tenant program throughout the county, just like the city of Gainesville. What happens to the people who are living out near La Crosse, who live in a 1976 single-wide mobile home, who are paying $450 a month in rent, no AC, but that's what they can afford. And if Alachua County implements that, where are those people going to be able to move to at the same value without increasing financial burden on them for having to live in Union County, Putnam County, Dixie County. Good question. We're going to have to probably conclude on that point, Terry, because it's 10 o'clock. Fascinating conversation. We may have some follow-up discussion as we go uh, along. Uh, we read today that now this meeting has been put off because of notification requirements for quite some time. And the issue has come up whether the lame duck city commission will be able to make the decisions about this or whether it should be put off until the newly elected commissioners take their seats but they won't actually take their seats until January. Correct. So there's another whole argument to this thing. It's not done. It's just warming up this jet engines. Hey, man, Terry, you're invited back anytime, man. It's great to see you. Uh, great to hear from you. And I appreciate you stepping in. I know we've not even begun to exhaust your expertise. I appreciate production for helping out. And uh, all you people who I've been watching uh, here with your messages on the chat. We, of course, will post the documents over on Ward's Hot Bulletin Board. And we will also um, have this out on wardscottfiles.com in just a few minutes. And then it goes to Spotify, Apple Podcasts. Uh, it's already going to YouTube. So there's a lot of places you can rehear the story. And uh, we invite you to share it. 
because it is all about teaching and education, and hopefully we helped out a little bit with that. So, Terry, have a great day, and um, we'll be talking soon. I appreciate you coming on, and uh, we'll be back uh, soon with another great show, hopefully, for you that will help my students make good grades. We're all command center out.